Welcome, everyone. We are here for a very special session, and I'm so excited to be able to share this with you right now. I would love to know before we even get started and do anything where you all are calling in from. I love getting to see how global this community is, and today is no exception to that. We've got an we've got an exceptional chat that's about to come up. And if you know anything about how we do this, uh, you probably know now is the moment that we get to have a little bit of a guitar intro. And I'm going to bring out our three friends from Quantum Black and McKinsey. Uh, but I'm going to do it in a little bit of a different fashion than you probably are used to. We're here today to talk all about Gen AI and if you should be building or buying. So I'm going to use that as some fodder for the song that I want to create on the fly here. But I also love getting prompted by you all. So if you have some different ideas of what I should sing about, feel free to drop that in the chat and I will do my best to musically inspired, improvised jam session right now. And I'm going to make it quick because we've got these incredible people waiting to jump in. I imagine you can hear that. Can you give me a thumbs up if you hear that team? You hear the guitar, all right, so this is where it gets dangerous. <laughs> We've got Quantum Black telling us all we need to know about whether or not we built or by in the Gen AI Gen AI space Do I need to build or buy? This is the round table with three experts that I have no business being on a call with but hey lucky me you all are in the right place you came to the right show we're gonna get it started right now let me bring out our guests of honor we've got mo he's here calling in from london where you at mo where you at mo where you at bring him onto the stage there he is and next up we got nayur nayur Coming straight from the UK. Last but not least, we've got Alonia. Now we're ready to start this roundtable. What's happening, folks? I just can't get enough of that intro. So thank you, Demetrios. It's so great to be here. <laughs> that was fantastic, dude. That's we should have recorded that. I <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on Spotify. It Don't you worry. It will be going up in a week and we'll send everyone a link to stream it, you know? But 
We didn't come here just for that. I know we came for all kinds of incredible things around building or buying in the Gen AI space. And since I took up a little bit of extra time on that intro, I wanna jump right into it. I know there's lots of things that we can be talking about, but we should probably level set with just what we mean when we're talking about building or buying for Gen AI, what models are out there, what does this look like? How do you see this space? And Mo, I'll kick it off to you first to let us or lead us and bring us towards the light, man. Where are we at? Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you, Mitri. Uh, uh, hello, everyone. My name is Mohammed Abbasid or Mo. Uh, I'm a senior solution architect at Quantum Black. I spend a lot of my time helping companies and organizations learn about analytics, how to deploy analytics, how to make the best of it, and how to run it in production at scale. Uh, I'm joined by my two colleagues, I think, Nair and Ilona. Of course. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much, Mo. Hi, everyone. Ilona Logvanova. I am based in New York. Um, I am so honored to be here today. I have a dual role here at McKinsey. So on the one side of it, I am managing counsel for McKinsey Digital, where I'm one of the leaders of our global technology legal team, and I work with, you know, really anything related to emerging tech, any legal regulatory issues um, and advising our in-house, our internal consultants, like the wonderful group that you see here today. And on the other side of it, I'm the head of innovation for McKinsey Legal for our legal function globally. And that's where I get to really think about some of the, the, the points that we're thinking about today, right? Build or buy, thinking about how we adopt and pilot and employ and implement legal technologies, thinking about generative AI and what it means for our workflows, for how um, really for how we do our everyday work and how we deliver our services more broadly. Nair, over to you. Fantastic. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Nair Khan. I'm a partner, um, Quantum Black, based out of London. Um, I've focused on one topic, which is really how do you scale artificial intelligence? And that's not just running one or two models in production, but taking organizations on the journey to get to hundreds or thousands. Over the last year, I've also inherited a lot of the Gen AI stuff. And for my sins, that's how do I take this great, amazing technology that Mo is going to introduce, but really make it real. And when I say make it real, there's lots of decisions that um, need to be made by organizations. And we'll touch on some of the build versus buy and how should you be thinking about it and this rate of change of what's going on in the industry. But super happy to be here with you all today. I think it's uh, it's exciting times. Uh, we've got a lot of people who are interested in this topic. Uh, ChatGPT started it all off, and you know, uh, took the genie out of the bottle. We we see huge adoption of uh, kind of the Gen AI uh, from researchers to public adoption, and a huge spike of, to millions of users. It's been discussed across all channels and mediums. And 2023 was a special year for it. Um, a huge number of Gen AI models being released almost weekly, if you count. Um, and it's gone beyond just, uh, it's not text. It's gone beyond the text. It's actually text, images, videos, and audio. And we've also seen many trusted and um, tools that we use day to day are getting intelligent and operating systems and starting to integrate a lot of these capabilities in it. and. All of that brings a lot of questions um, to to the people that we work with, to companies, and to the individuals we have here. Is that what does it mean for us? How do we use it? How do we interact with it? And uh, what is build versus buy? What is open source? 
versus commercial and what do we do? The first thing I wanted to 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 start us off is to ask Naya maybe uh, what kind of models do we have available and to um, hear from you. Look, I, I and maybe this is just about framing and we'll we'll have a discussion, but it's good to get the framings right and um I, I'd bucket up models in two categories. You've got the closed type models, um, ones that you call by API that are probably commercial in nature, you know, things like OpenAI um, or even Google's Gemini as an example. Um, so those are what I would call closed models because they're behind an API, don't know what's going on. It's a black box for intents and purposes and it's on someone else's kit argument sake. Then you've got these open models. I know some people call them open source, but we can debate on the terminology, but let's just call it open for time being. Um, there's, for example, you have Mistral's, uh, Mistral AI's, uh, Mistral um, or Mixtral recently. That's Apache too. You can use that. Uh, you can take that off the shelf and use that yourself and you don't have to worry about third party. Um, uh, Technology uh, Innovation Institute's Falcon is another one. Meta's Llama too, which is really, really popular. But probably not, it's not Apache, has it? certain commercial things you need to think about uh, or restrictions um and if you go look at a hugging hugging face i mean like uh, there's about four hundred seventy thousand models up there at last count uh, when i looked earlier um that's huge there's lots of great things in open source so i'd buck in two parts there's the closed models um and so it's not always open ai or gpt like that's the first thing i want to just point out and then there's a ton of stuff on open models and things that you could host yourself and do stuff with so that's how I'd back it up the different types of model, and this is just really to, to frame the the uh, the uh, the build by would you use commercial, do you use open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now I think there is another part of this, so like I think mean, like how companies are are using these type of models, and so I I would think about three different categories, but the first one you can tend to say, look, this is not something part of this discussion. There is existing software or tools that are adding gen AI, gen AI type capabilities or these large language model capabilities today. Um, so Microsoft, if you've got Windows 11, you will start to see co-pilots appear. And eventually, if you buy new laptops, you start to see your keyboard, uh, a key on your keyboard, which is a, a co-pilot key. Um, Salesforce, SAP, GitHub to a degree, all of these things are, are, are adding LLM capabilities. So you might as well just let's part that. So really, the, the, the discussion comes down to, to two parts, which is the do I buy a product or solution off the shelf and um, um, which has an LLM inside it or is uses an LLM? So that the product and that has two parts: the product, what people use, and then the engine, the LLM part, like the part of the solution. You don't get a choice of which LLM, but it's there. And it, this could be things like chatbots or text editing, video editing software. There's lots of things that have exploded onto the scene. So these are buy off the shelf, and you have everything. Then there's the other part of this, which is you might want to build something custom for your organization. Um, uh, and this is where you have choices. Choices, do I use these closed models we talked about earlier, or do I use these open models? So I just wanted to make sure we frame every, everything in some of these these buckets and categories. But we'll, we'll discuss, I guess, a lot around the, do you buy something off the shelf and everything's inside it and you don't get a choice in the model and which model using how it does stuff behind it. So it's a black box, but it's software you can just get up and running quickly. Or do you start to build stuff inside your organization? And then how do you choose between different models? And how do you make trade-offs uh, on, on a lot of these things? And this is where I think Alona will add light a little bit on, on risk and Vigo and, and some of the considerations. Yeah, and there, I, I love, I think that that's really clear and that's really helpful to understand. And one thing that I, I wanted to just ask you a bit more about, and this is where 
the, the, the risk considerations become really important, right? Because the first question that I think comes up, at least in my experience in, in these conversations is, well, you know, what about the data security issues or what about the confidentiality issues? And I think it's really important to understand the distinction between something that's closed in terms of being an enterprise model versus something that's open, right? So data flows, how does your data work when you're using any of these models? What kind of offerings can you get with any of these models, whether you're building or you're buying and how should you think about that? Because I think when organizations are thinking about this and when those in charge of this are thinking about that within organizations, right? There's really there's really um, a focus on protecting that organization's data, but there's also in equal parts a focus on getting the best and the the best form and the optimized generated insights from both that data and maybe from external sources too. And so I'm wondering how you think about this, and Mo, please feel free to chime in too. You know, how do you understand closed enterprise versions of various offerings, or, or you know, what various models can provide, and what what do you see in terms of what's available today? Yeah, um, I mean, look, before I, I, I answer, I, I think it's also good to be, for you to kind of shed light. I and mean, you spend yeah. a lot of time um, um, putting your introduction aside, but with clients. Yeah. And it's, it's probably the first thing that clients are asking about. <laughs> so, so maybe shed a little bit of light on it because I think it helps. And the only reason I'm, I'm asking about this is that traditionally, you know, if we t- talk about, you know, IT procurement, or build versus buy, and these they're traditional frameworks for deciding. But with this technology and the way that this integrates into an existing enterprise with inside an organization, there are other risks which aren't, you don't typically have with some of the other traditional technologies we, we have today in enterprises. And this is what worries our customers. Maybe shed a little bit of light on that. Then we can use that as an anchoring point of you know the build versus buy traditional frameworks, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's been interesting to me is really is probing what this question means for different organizations and for for those who ask it and are worried about it. And I think, right, we need to understand how this comes together in different ways. So when you're thinking about an enterprise version, the way I think about it is really as just a closed circle. So if you're taking um, if you're taking a capability, right, an LLM driven capability, and it's an enterprise version of that capability, you're essentially just working within that circle. So your data, whether it's on-prem or cloud-based, whatever it might be, however it's hosted, it's not leaving your enterprise. It's not going outside and you're not drawing information from the outside world into your enterprise data source, right? Or your data-driven insights. And that is probably the safest approach. So you're essentially creating a universe where your data is is read, right? It's iterated on. There, there are insights generated based on that data only. And you're then just working only with that. Then there's the next layer of, you know, maybe you have some level of output from either the tool itself and there are pre-fed data sources into the tool, or maybe the tool to some extent pulls data from the outside world, right? But it's not feeding your data out into that world. So your data is not used to train you know, the the broader LLM in any way. So your data still stays within the circle, but then you're drawing insights from kind of a broader set of data points and data sources. What's interesting is that at this point in time, depending on the tool, depending on how it's built and how it's structured, you can mitigate what we call hallucinations. So hallucinations are really just how, um, how AI gets it wrong, right? So it's generating insights 
where it just gets it wrong. It either makes stuff up or it's something that's not true, right? But the reason that it does that is because these generative technologies, their beauty and their power is in creativity itself. So they can be creative. That's what they do best. And it's really interesting to think about, too, what their limitations are, right? So when we see what the limitations are on generative AI, it's really their ability to do multi-step reasoning. And that's why doing math is such a good you know, use case to show what it can't do. Because what it can do is be creative. But when it comes to multi-step reasoning that has a degree of being right or wrong, that's where it sometimes you know, is not as accurate as it should be. And so bringing that all together, if you're okay with a bit less creativity, but you'd really like to double down on safety, there's a way to do that, depending on how you structure the tool, depending on whether you keep it more open or more closed. And it's really just a matter of what your internal strategy is and how you build it and how correct you'd like that tool to be fit for your particular use case, from my perspective. Yeah, no, I I, I love that. I If I dig a little bit deeper, I think what you're trying to say is that it's the these LLMs or these engines, call it whatever you want, um, they're great, but you also have to use your data, which I think is a key key unlock. And I, I think you know that once you try to explain to people actually that we're not using the LLMs knowledge, the unlock here for many organizations is their data, and it and it's around the sensitivity of that data, um, which is one of the lenses you need to consider. If I understood correctly, well, are they comfortable with that leaving the perimeter? and going somewhere else and living in someone else's house, argument sake, or do they want to keep that within inside their own boundaries, their own perimeter in their own house? And then managing that before we get onto hallucinations, is that correct? Exactly right. Yep, exactly. No, no, absolutely. Um, look, I'd, I'd add another lens on, on top of the, the, the risk stuff. And I'm sure we'll dive a little bit more, especially on hallucinations, IP, and a, the, there's a, there's a ton of stuff. Um, if I bring the IT way of thinking about, you know, build versus buy. Like, I want to buy something because I want to try something very quickly, like I or gain some kind of capability very, very quickly. But at the trade-off that I can't customize it and I can't control it, which is the risk lens. Customization is gonna, going to be important. I will, we'll dig into why that's important, but um, I might not be able to control it as well, which is, I think, what you're alluding to. There's the, the huge risk lens. If I build something, Potentially, and this could be I build some software for some users internally. I get, you know, exactly what I want. But there's a greater expense here. Now, build doesn't mean I, I have to build all the parts. I can take parts, and this is where the open close comes into it, or and I have to make decisions. But I have a greater expense of actually building something what I want, and it takes a lot more effort, and then there's more constraints on, like, do I have the right, you know, people, kind of skills, do I have the right data, infrastructure, GPUs, which is big, big problem availability to do this. Can I, can I do this? Not, not everyone is, can, is Bloomberg and can build, build their own GPT. I'll pick on them as an example, but, um, I'd, I'd always come back to, um, higher level. And whenever we're talking to organizations and just before we get into build versus buy, what's, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Like I'm going to borrow something from Steve jobs. And I, I talk about this a lot at, at it. Um, and it sounds so common sense, but what's the problem trying to solve? Why is it a problem? Um, um, and then work back, whack backwards to, well, what do you need to address that problem? Do you need a chatbot? Like it, arguments say, do you need an LLM? Is there other things better that you could do instead? Um, and sorry, that might offend people. I, I'm not a, not for tech forwards where here's some technology and then let's go find a problem. I, 
that never really sticks. So it's if there's a, a, a real need of an organization, it's working way backwards. And then to your to everything that you highlighted, Ilona, Lo, I love your your insight on this. Um, what's the risk lens? What's the, the the talent lens? What's the the skill lens? Infrastructure, and it, the list goes on and on. And there's lots of things. And so, build versus buy, it depends. Like that's the that's probably the, the punchline. Depends on the organization. It depends on a lot of things. No, I'd love your take because I, I feel like I've been talking for a bit. Um, but you know more than I do in the field. You're always telling me off. So no, 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 no not at all. I think you you framed it well, right? I think that one of the other dimensions to add into this is that um, Gen AI is a new field. So when the conversation comes to build versus buy, and especially in the kind of a pre-built product, it is a new field. A lot of the products are either just coming into the market. Uh, all kind of being demoed and tested or kind of they haven't spent long enough for a lot of companies to feel comfortable uh, deploying these. So when you add that, um, generally organizations don't necessarily go through this. They've seen a product that matured in the market or there's multiple options and thereby they'll pick it up and select. So when you bring that lens and you say, um, how mature is the product? How mature is the market? What am I looking to solve for and how it's going? I, as, a, as an organization, to make this decision, I will have to think really hard. Um, number one, uh, especially with how rapid the field has been moving, um, a lot of organizations decided to build their own chatbots, maybe the beginning of 2023. And then like by mid-2023, we started to see you can get products that will allow you to spin up your own chatbot without the engineering effort. And so there's a kind of a question being asked now, should I wait three months, six months, uh, or build it myself? And what are kind of the questions that I have to take on? And how do I know it will be built? And so maybe a better question some some people ask is that, is it something I should be building myself? Or is it something I should expect the market to provide for me? Um, and one of the lens I kind of, or one of the insights I concluded on is that if you believe you're building a product that is core to your IP. It is an essential part of your business, or it's an essential part of your product. And there's there's a very strong reason to kind of explore, should I build it and should I do this? Because as you said, you will have your data in it. You may have more than just your data, your policy, your, your constraints and control. Other things like, um, for example, Copilot. I don't think every company should be developing their own GitHub Copilot to uh, accelerate developers. I think uh, a few options would be enough, but not enough for every company to build it on their own. So I wanted to say something. I, I just am jumping in because I love these points that you're making. And there's something that Lonya mentioned that I think is fascinating when it comes to the degrees of that ability for you to have this buy selection where maybe it's, it's just your someone who's like a regular person going and hitting the GPT for API or maybe, and then you don't have any idea what's happening with your data behind the scenes. Are they training anything with it or not? And then, so you have that kind of like spectrum, I think, which is fascinating where you can say, okay, now I know I'm still buying, but I know what's happening with my data. And I'm able to say that this is not being uh, used for training purposes. And then Mo, what you were saying is something that I've been hearing a lot of people talk about as far as 
thinking about forward compatibility and how can I build something now for the future and future-proof it in case a new model comes out. Everybody's talking about multimodal now. Can I build a system that is ready for the multimodal model that comes out, the Llama 3 model, next month when that drops? Like, how can I be forward compatible and backwards compatible? So there's my two cents. I'll get off stage now and let you all get back to it. And Demetrius, I'll add to that too. I love the idea of thinking about compatibility and forward and backward, but there's also regulatory compatibility, right? And making sure that you're not, that you're avoiding regulatory debt. And we're certainly not here to give legal advice, but I think different providers and different build and buy considerations really should embed that as an analysis and a point of consideration. So if you're building something, embedding responsible AI principles in by design and making sure that you're thinking about, you know, working with your legal and compliance teams to think about where the regulatory space is headed to make sure that if you're building, you're not putting yourself into a position of, you know, falling into regulatory debt down the line. On the flip side, if you're buying, understanding the right questions to ask your vendors and really think about, you know, are your vendors or whoever you're you're buying from aligned with certain principles, aligned with your own organizational positioning on responsible AI issues, right? And how you approach it and how you embed it in by design. I think these are all really important considerations. 100%. I, I want to I want to build on that and, and the comment I made earlier about, you know, what's the problem you're solving and then working your way backwards, like from, from the use case perspective. Um, and this, Demetrius, this t- touches a little bit on, on um, you know, someone just chooses a GPT. But for some use cases, they're so trivial, you don't need the gold standard. I, I, I don't believe you do. You, so in some use cases are so trivial inside organization that you could get away with something very, very small. Um, um, that's not GPT. It, it doesn't always have to be GPT for uh, argument sake. Um, it could be one of the, the simple open source, uh, open models. Um, and I can see a situation as as it started to emerge is that you eventually may have, but we'll talk about the risk angle. The risk suddenly is magnified. Lots of different solutions or use cases with inside your organization, which will be using different LLMs. And that's a different ballgame from a, if you were a, a chief data officer, CIO, CTO, you'll be worried at night, like, where is my data going? How, how am I protecting this? But I can see that situation already, especially with a lot of these off-the-shelf solutions, which have LLMs as features or generative AI parts as features. You don't know what model that's using. It's not written anywhere. And and and, it, and that that's happening at the moment. You know, we're, we're seeing that at the moment. So I just wanted to build on that. I'd always start from the the... I personally believe you will start from the use case point. You work your way backwards and figure out what you need. And sometimes it might not, but that needs to be a consideration. It might not be the GPT of the world. You could use something trivial and small, very, very small, lovely hosted. There, there's an awesome question that just came through the chat that I want to grab uh, real fast while we are on this topic. And it is asking about if there are products that folks are seeing which provide transparency for the users or clients into how the model was trained or for that ma- matter, what model it is. Because maybe if we can just get what model it is, then we can say, okay, we agree or don't agree with this model's uh, training and the way that they've done things. Is is that off-the-shelf products? Yeah. That are... So is there products that provide the transparency for how the model was trained or which model is being used behind the scenes? Like you were saying, like a lot of times we don't necessarily get that yeah we, we we don't get i mean even with the open let's say let's say the open models we don't know how 
we could definitely fine tune these open models, but we don't know how they were trained. We don't know exactly the data sets that were used, even though some of them, like, could you reproduce, like if I use a proper definition of open source, I could take the source code and I can go and get the data, get my own hardware. I can reproduce exactly, but I don't think you can do that today. And with some of these black boxes, I don't mean you can um, um, black box off the shelf type products. You could, you know, you have the full transparency of what's available or what's being used behind the scenes. Well, I don't, I don't know if you've seen differently or I don't know if you've seen differently like product evaluations, but I don't, I, if I can look now, I don't see anything on terms and conditions that we use these type of models and this is how we use your data and this is how it was trained. I've seen it differently. I think I was trying to cheat a little bit and say, uh, big organizations that may use managed services will have some of their data agreements that, you know, we share your data with X and Y. And there are some companies that I think I may have spotted it, but I don't think it's enough of a transparency to say here as a user, how you can go and learn about it. I think that's right. And I'll just add that, you know, it's helpful to keep in mind. I don't know that we get this level of transparency, but keeping in mind that different LLM providers have um, different sets of ethos behind, they have a different ethos, right? Each one of them. So Anthropic versus Cohere versus others, right? Um, Versus OpenAI. There are just... um, different considerations and different ways in which the, the functionality operates. And you can you can argue, right, different effectiveness levels, some are better than others for certain things, right? They're, they have, they're starting to, we're starting to see different types of features and different types of kind of guiding and foundational principles emerge, which I think is a really interesting space to watch. But again, we can really only understand that if we have transparency into which LLM something is using in the first place. Maybe we, we walk through some examples, like some you know, fictional examples is like, you know, some of the decisions someone would need to do. Would that, would that yeah, be definitely. a good way just to, to anchor on, on, on things? Hey, I'm Vishnu. I'm a data scientist at First Hand, and I definitely think that you should subscribe to the MLOps Coffee Sessions podcast. It's the best podcast out there to stay on top of what MLOps actually is, to talk to the true thought leaders in the space. And oh, by the way, Demetrios is absolutely hilarious. What a weird guy. You should definitely subscribe to the podcast. Um, so that so I... Let's use a chatbot as an example, and uh, chatbots are everywhere. But, but maybe there's an, an organization who wants to build a chatbot, um, and one of their, you know, um, maybe they want to prove value quickly. Do, does this have value? Now, if I framed it right earlier, that, that there's two parts: there's the product, what people use, and then there's a model part. On the product side of the, the chatbot, the front end, they're really using ServiceNow, so we can ignore that for now. So, so we'll just focus on the model and focus on the integration. Now, in this fictional example, maybe um, because they have to build this backend, they need to build an API and they have a, an LLM, this fictional organization might have Azure. And so it's not too much of a stretch because they just want to prove values, proof of concept, maybe to use Azure's OpenAI as an example, even though we've been saying you don't have to always use that, but I'm just using that as an example. And because they probably have Azure, they've also got a contract in place and probably guidelines around, you know, the data will never leak out and whatnot. And a load of me comment here on, you know, what, what what you should, you should look out for. So that, that's the, the model part. But then there is actually a build part because it doesn't, that's, that's not all we have to do. We talked about this service now, we, we've chosen the model, but we actually have to build something. And this is that API somehow, we have to integrate that with service now. We 
we have to use our data somehow. So now we need to talk about, okay, you need to build a, you need a vector store. So you need to put that somewhere. Um, you need that backend up and running. You need the infrastructure. Um, and then you need to work on the ways of integrating backwards and forwards with service now. But that's the kind of decision-making that you might go for, let's say, a, 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 an internal facing uh, customer chatbot, an internal facing. But maybe then because you are want to make it external facing and now you're talking about well i don't want it to be a proof of concept i've proven that the the team can use it and it's solving a problem we talked about earlier it's a bit sensitive data there's customer data here i don't i don't fully want to put it into open ai so now it's about taking that model part and saying okay i want to host that myself i don't want to i don't want someone else's i don't want it to be in someone else's um, um, infrastructure. I want to host it myself. So now you have options on, on some of the um, open models. Then that's curve of from using an API or someone's API or someone's model or something from a commercial point of view and then pivoting later as you start to move towards production and scaling this out and you have more risk worries. That's what I tend to see. But may, maybe I'll just pause there and say, does, does that resonate with you too? It really does. Yeah. And, and I might even go one step back a bit. I think that was you said it so well in there. And I, I, the question that I see that I've been getting most often or that I've seen, you know, in the industry or in roundtables that's been talked about is what do we do first, right? In terms of thinking about use cases, whether it's legal services or, or other industries, right? Um, when organizations are thinking about how to approach generative AI from an assistive perspective, right? When they're augmenting, accelerating, empowering what they're doing, how do they identify the use cases and what should they do first? And I think the chatbot to me is the high value, high, highly scalable use case, right? And then the question is, if you're building that, and when we say chatbot, the way that I understand chatbot is it's really, it, it chatbot sounds kind of funny. It sounds like it's a little robot doing lots of different things. But I think the way to understand it in very simple terms, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's something that, you know, it's like a really smart, enhanced Google in a lot of ways, right? It's Google that can do lots of different things and, and even more broadly. It can summarize information for you. It can generate insights based on your, you know, everything that you have internally in terms of your knowledge base, right? Whether it's policies and procedures or um, data that you've collected or insights that you've collected or, you know, in financial services or in in you know, it might be investment summaries or in the legal space, it's contracts, right? Whatever it is that you'd like to summarize or aggregate and generate insights on internally, it can do that for you. It can also paraphrase emails. It can shorten your emails and make them clearer. It can summarize things that you feed into it, right? It's basically your right-hand assistive tool to do a lot of things organizationally faster than you can, than you can just ordinarily do them, you know, at human speed. And that, to me, is what chatbot means. And that's high value and high, highly scalable across your organization. And the build versus buy consideration that I think is really interesting is when you're thinking about build versus buy, if you have the capability to build, I think what's really interesting for organizations to think about is that they know their data best, right? You as an organization, you know the kind of data that you have. And so you know and you may understand that tension of how you treat that data and how you want insights generated on that data versus having the risk of hallucination, for example, right? That you are uniquely positioned to understand the tension of that risk and what it means. Whereas something that's off the shelf may not get that, um, may not get that tension exactly right. Maybe it's too risky, maybe it's not risky enough, but you as an organization 
you understand your own strategic priorities, you know what kind of tooling will really feed your needs best. And there, this is to your point, right? Don't have the tech identify the problem for you. Identify the problem first and address it. And I, that, I think, is really the heart of the matter. It's about understanding what your problem statement is, what your pain points are, and how you address it, and then considering whether you can tailor something towards that by building or buying. Uh, I was going to add a, another lens to it as well, that when you're using a service such as um, one of the managed services, Claude, uh, uh, OpenAI, and what have you, is that it's not just the model, right? We've, we've noticed that, for example, when models were released at earlier stages, uh, people have tried to get them to say inappropriate things, get them to kind of do behavior they were not intending to do, and so on. And over time, those suppliers did add guardrails, did add enforcement layers and layers in front of it. So what you get as a user, uh, it's not just the model. It's the model plus whatever values a certain organization may uh, kind of deem the right for them. So one of the things that I generally um, float when we say the build versus buy, it's really easy for us maybe here in the UK and in the US because the UK is so close kind of to the US culture to a degree. But like a lot of the models have been coming from uh, the US and kind of from a Western culture. So a lot of the guardrails, all of the behaviors that are being ingrained in them are very suitable to this. And when you start to ask, can I deploy, I'm an organization, I'm an international organization. If I build a chatbot that I wanted to serve to my uh, organization internally or to my customer base that's global, will the behavior and the success that I get when I run it in the English and I start to roll it out to French and other European languages or even take it to African or Middle Eastern and then um, Asian things be replicable? Is this something that I have to worry about because I have built the product, I've demonstrated the value. I, I know it works, but the small detail is that do I now have to worry that when I do um, run it in different markets, I can expect different behaviors because an individual sitting in Southeast Asia may ask the question differently um, than somebody who um, will ask it um, in, in the UK and maybe they'll ask it even in their local language. I love that. And, and look, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but I, I know someone recently took the, um, I mean, this is probably why one of the big benefits um, of, of open models. Um, someone recently took the, uh, the Llama 2 model uh, and fine-tuned it um, for for Odia. Uh, now, Odia is a, a, an Indic language of, of, a, of, a, of a place in the um, in Odisha, in the Indian state of Odisha. And what they wanted is they wanted additional domain knowledge of the local area and the culture. So like food recipes, historical places, um, temples, um, some of the health rituals, art, culture, famous people of the region. You're not going to get that with... Um, probably a commercial model that's built in the US. Like if, you, if you're in India and if you're in the Middle East, you probably want something local as well. If you're in, in Far East, you probably want something. So I think one of the benefits, and this is also why like goes back to it depends. What what are you what are you building for? And what do you need to do? Now, but to fine tune models and, and do that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that, is that you still, you will need additional talent and you or skills and you need infrastructure and you need GPUs and whatnot. But you can get something that works for your, for you, for your as an organization. I think it's a pretty cool story. I think there's a paper out, um, and maybe I can share it on the chat uh, if I can find it. But it's just a nice benefit. Of, okay, this is why open open models are are, are 
are pretty useful because I wouldn't expect um, one of the uh, the big vendors to do this. There are some really cool questions coming through in the chat. And one that I've been noodling on um, for the last minute is how do you all differentiate the build versus buy question for Gen AI versus just ML, traditional ML, I guess we could call it these days, if at all? I'll, I'll try. I'll try to take a stab at it because they're not the same thing. Um, so that's that's the first thing, and and they complement each other very very nicely. Um, look, if I um, use the example as a as a, as a customer um, uh, interaction type of tool, um, maybe for example, maybe you you like uh, your your uh, a retailer. Maybe there's a, they've got um, purchase history. Maybe they want to do recommendations to an individual, and maybe they want to use Gen AI to customize those recommendations in a language or tone, especially for the end individual. So maybe Mo likes black t-shirts, maybe Alona likes t-shirts with bit sparkle. I don't know. But <laughs> but as a as a as a retailer, I I I know all of it. I have all this data because I've got their purchase history and I see what they're doing and what but I also know, you know, where they respond, do they respond to emails or Slack messages or text messages or what that calculation or those analytic models um to decide which is the best channel to talk to them, what's the appropriate messaging and whatnot. That's traditional AI. And you, you still need to have that. And then what you could do is take a lot of that information and, and then pass it to Gen AI, which will then come out with something like, I don't know, to, tomorrow would be very, very, um, very formal type of like, this is available and here's a discount or whatnot. And to maybe to alone it'd be very, very hip and kind of text message, very short, punchy to the point. And that could be the Gen AI layer, but I I see them as complement. They don't replace each other. But then here comes back to the the the, the technology and and figuring you're out all these different parts. There's a Gen AI part for sure, and the input of that is not in what we've been talking about, which is RAG. The input of that is the output of some analytic model, which is saying send message at this time at this channel to this person. Um, and, and so you work your way backwards and to train that analytic model, you still need your data platform or your customer 360. You still need um, your traditional ML ops. You still need to build some kind of infrastructure to do that. I'll just pause there, but I, I don't know if Mo, Eloni, you have anything else to add on to that, but it's just to bring it to life that there are, Gen AI doesn't replace, it complements. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I think there, I'd almost, say it's in the name, it's the generative nature of it. Like if you look at what people use generative AI based the most popular cases, it isn't something that we've traditionally done with regular ML. We may have done it with robotics automations and if for example, chatbots isn't something that um, ML kind of had superiority on and a lot of the popular ones have always been rule-based and keyword-based and acknowledgement. And when Gen AI came about or when I know there's more than just LNMs in this space. There is picture and so on. Uh, we should probably speak about those in another session because they deserve their own um, session. Uh, the LNMs in this space, I'm using it to either take a corpus, extract something out of it, summarize something out of it, process something out of it, or maybe I give it some hints and I ask it to generate something out of it. Now, the applicability where I can continue, as you said, I think, let me find the insight that I want to reach my user to. And now that I found out I want to reach um, there, uh, the cool spiky kid, uh, for um, those black t-shirts, and I want to reach him on WhatsApp. Now, to frame a message 
that will allow me to engage him in a particular tone and so on. I'll have to go build a new product and so on. And well, if I built it for Nair, I'll have to build a different one for Nona. And so generative AI has kind of unlocked a certain space. We we had very robotically kind of been engaged in technology with it, rather than creatively, how can I just give it enough prompts and ask and, and get it to surprise me? I think that's where Laura was saying earlier, a very good at just creativity where I I know what I want, or at least I know what I want to deliver, but I don't know how to deliver it. Can you help? And that spontism, even though it, it kind of is, um, could be scary in some uh, use cases, the nature of it is what um, Gen AI is adding to the, to the to the entire conversation. What do you think, Yolanda? Yeah, Mo, you said I, that's exactly what I was going to index on. I, I wanted to focus on that generative quality. And I think you said it really nicely, both of you. So it's the generative quality and it's the spontaneity, right? And that's where so much of the interesting value is in this tech. The one thing I would add, and this is really just adding and building on on everything that you're saying in terms of a consideration for or, for organizations, thinking about the data readiness for generative AI, I like to think about it in, in terms of nutrition, right? What does a specific type of Gen AI technology, if you're building or buying, what kind of nutrition is it, you know, fed on? It Does it sustain on? Is it Word documents? Is it PDFs? Is it, you know, is it structured data, unstructured data? I think this is important to think about. And I think this is a bit different than more traditional AI when you're, you know, building, when you're feeding data into an algorithm. I think generative AI, at least at this stage, is a bit more sensitive to the data type and format that it feeds on. And so that's just important to think about in terms of getting the output that you want and, you know, the level of creativity you're looking for. I, I want to, um, I, I love that. I, I want to build on something you said earlier, Alona. Um, and, and this just finishes off the point on the, the AI stuff. Um, the, the Gen AI technology is great, but it's not great at numbers. It's not great at maths. Uh, like uh, you, you can trade it all you like. It's not going to get the map. And uh, where there's some kind of financial stuff going on, um, this is where your traditional AI is going to really, really like kick ass. It, it, it is. It, you're, you're going to need it. You're just going to keep going backwards and backwards until you go, okay, damn, I need to do traditional analytics. I need to do traditional AI. I need to get that right. I need to build that in place. So um, lots of those investments in um, uh, MLOps and um, having all those processes in place, ways of working, they're all still valid. They don't go away. You just now have added additional um, to what Mo and Alona have added, um, additional things you need to think about in terms of how do I treat this unstructured data um, um, very well? How do I govern that you know, with my existing exist, um, modern data stacks? How do I have a proper kind of a CI, CD, some kind of testing? But how do I test this stuff on top of what else I've got in place? It doesn't, uh, it just complements, it just adds on top. And if I take the lens of a, a, someone who manages a lot of this stuff, it's it's complex. It's not, it's not easy. It will get better over time and I'm sure Vendors will put out the all-in-one solution, but right now, today, it's stitching lots of different technologies and tech together, um, uh, which is a which is an interesting challenge that we don't talk about enough. I think the the last sentence you said, it's stitching. I think one of the uh, interesting things up until before. So, if you look at the history of Gen AI, like or or LLMs, they were being developed for quite a few years before they kind of reached a a, a crazy popularity out of nowhere. And it was the application. It's like how we started this conversation. What is the problem? I don't know if OpenAI knew they were going after it, even though I read some blogs that it was kind of a um, a random success story. But the objective is once you have triggered the successful use case, 
where it clicks for people how to use it, suddenly you've got a boom of adoption out of nowhere. And if you look at businesses and users who are asking to use Gemini now, right, I love in this degree, it's like, how many of them are data scientists? How many of them are people that understand the data science and kind of um, understand how these models are, but they don't actually. You, you'll notice that a lot of it are business users that have understood enough how to interact with the product to build their own products or solve their own problems. And thereby, like I was hearing a funny story where um, grandparents are using it to summarize books or to generate their, their bedtime stories. Like, could you have told me in 2015 or, or before kind of that there will be people who are not even classed on the digital scale uh, of adoption using these technologies in such a free form. And, and that, that, yeah. that's the applicability and that kind of where, where one of the, also the interesting niches I found Gemini being used for, it's been used as a stitch between many things. Like it is so quick and easy and dirty to be able to grab an output from a website, do something for it, send it somewhere else, pick it up somewhere else. And it's like, traditional AI always suffered from the data processing. You need really clean, good data, good shape. That's what informed the decision-making. With Gen AI, you could now upload your Excel and ask it questions. In, in some of the examples in the um, chat GPT, for example, and it will be able to do things for you. Yes, it's not just the model, there's more, but you can see the application. So, so, so I, think, I think we're um, we're converging on on time soon, but I mean, as I as I hear this, look, the, the, there's a top level message of it depends. There's a there's a message of you know what are you solving for? There's a whole lot of different types of risk you need to you need to navigate, and that it's more than just calling an API. Like I think mean, for for this conversation, it's more than just calling an API. Whether that you're hosting that API or someone else is um, um, hosting an API, there's lots of things you need to think about, including risk, uh, including legal, including IP and a bunch of things. So I'm, I don't know, Demetrius, like, have we, have we done this or have we, have we confused everyone? <laughs> I think, uh, this has been absolutely incredible. I love the activity in the chat. I just got to say that it's really cool to see everyone chiming in and asking questions. And so there's been another question that is actually uh, something that I would love to get y'all's expertise on because it's a common pattern that I've seen, which is coming from Amit. And he's asking, how do you deal with model interoperability? Basically starting with OpenAI to get something out there fast, quick, dirty, POC. And then you're like, okay, we've got some ROI on this. We need to productionize it, but... We gotta have a little bit more transparency. We gotta have more control. We want to move to an open source thing so we can we can have that those levers that we need. Are there any guiding principles to yeah. follow to avoid huge migration risks? Yeah, this is a it's a really good question. Um, and I think I did a talk on this a while ago with maybe Mo or someone else. We we did a. Um, thing on this. Um, look, there's no easy way. Like, if you change the engine, uh, if, it's like changing the engine of your car. If you change the engine of your car, like, you might find that something doesn't work. Maybe it was petrol with Bornex diesel with prompts. Prompts are very sensitive to the to the models. Um, and you'll find it even within the same um, 
uh, a family model. So if it's OpenAI, for example, between 3.5 and 4, the pro might not work. And we've seen this, even between 4 and no one tells you that something has changed, the prompt stops working for whatever reason. Like, so there's a sensitivity. And so this is where, I, uh, you know, we haven't delved into this conversation, but it's having good technology principles, abstracting the prompts, but storing metadata that this one is valid and it works on this particular model and this particular uh, version of the particular model. But you're going, you're going to have to test, even when you're doing a POC and you know that at some point I'm going to use um, maybe an open model, bring it in-house, you're going to have to test. Now, I know some of our team have managed to get away with prompts that work cross models, but that's only because they're testing. And we've got, you know, they've, they've built a, a very, an, an indirection, so like, a, like a, a, an API gateway, a model gateway, so they could just quickly flip between the different ones and just test. So I, I would think about these kind of things versus to your, what I'm guessing is that you've just realized that, uh, oh, there's a migration effort and oh my God, there's thousands and thousands of prompts. How do, how do I work my way through this? And it's maybe lots and lots of hours of manual testing. How do I get through this? So try and think about those architectural principles. This space will change at a ridiculous pace. So having the good uh, hygiene or like DevOps, the foundational DevOps principles of ultimately as much as you can are going to pay dividends later on. Yeah. I think what I'll add to it is don't try and um, work in the middle of the night trying to get this prompt to work and then once you're happy with the answer, submit it and expect it, it will continue to. Make sure you have written uh, enough prompts and recorded those responses and kind of created some sort of a mechanism to constantly evaluate that what you're running against, because these are services or because these are especially when they're managed by somebody else, um, that they're constantly given at least an answer within the range you accept, whether it's an individual or an organization or so on. And you notice it, right? You notice like in, in Twitter or X now, when people start um, complaining that they used to ask it this way and now no longer responds. So that same behavior, um, you should document it and make it more reproducible and testable. Folks, I feel like our time here is sadly coming to an end. There are so many other great questions that I have in the chat right now, which is really cool to see. And I appreciate every one of you for asking these questions. What I will say is that these three lovely human beings that have been teaching us for the last hour or so, or at least 40 minutes, are all on LinkedIn. So that is the good part. Feel free to reach out to them on LinkedIn and continue the conversation and while you are here i want to share with you all that we're going to leave but that doesn't mean that you have to because we've got a whole section where you can you can go and you can meet people that are here with us so if you want to go to the left side here and you click on that match button then you can meet with others who are matched with you so you can see there's i think there's like 120 140 of us here right now that all maybe want to start chatting with each other and the other thing that i just had to point out was these folks the quantum black team put together this how to build a knowledge assistant at scale i know there were some questions coming through about grounding your ai in facts and all that fun stuff this is an incredible blog post about that and all the considerations that you want to be thinking about. 
And spoiler alert, they're coming out with some more. So wait till that drops soon enough. This has been so cool. Thank you, Nair, Lonya, and Mo. You all have uh, you've outdone yourselves for sure. Thank you, friends. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Rose Governor. See ya. Hey, Laszlo here. If you are serious about MLOps, you hit subscribe right now. 